Amen. Think about this question with me. How do you know, keyword know, how do you know that you are in fact a Christian? How do you know that you are a legit believer and what is the basis of your big word, assurance? Last week we talked about assurance. This week we're talking about assurance. What is your assurance that you are in Christ? Did you pray a prayer when you were six? Did you give intellectual agreement to the facts of the gospel? Yes, it's entirely possible that someone named Jesus lived and died and maybe rose from the dead. Is it just the cold facts of the gospel that you agree with, or is it based more on feelings? Now, rest assured, see what it did there? You'll get it later. Church, you can have an actual assurance that you are a Christian. In fact, biblical Christianity is the only worldview, the only religion that provides such an assurance. Even Roman Catholic doctrine states that to think that you have an absolute assurance of your salvation is sinful and an anathema, a curse, that there is no such thing as absolute assurance. But yet the Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible teaches the opposite, that you can, in fact, have assurance of your salvation. And Paul has been talking all about that. So if you're not there already, find your way to Romans chapter 7, chapter 8. Already been through chapter 7. And in fact, you cannot get through, uh, get to rather, chapter 8 without going through chapter 7. Everybody wants to get to chapter 8. And as we said last week, right, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the great part. But then chapter 7 was the struggle and the fight of sin. And chapter 8 then is the encouragement, it's all about assurance. You may note that we're in a little mini-series within a series, and we're going to continue to look at the doctrine of assurance. One theological dictionary defines assurance, listen to this, as the doctrine that teaches the possibility of Christians knowing that they are truly children of God. We can know that, and Paul has been teaching that in chapter 8, and hopefully by the Holy Spirit, he will teach us that again today. Last week, we hopefully saw the assurance of the Holy Spirit tell us that we are free from the condemnation of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So we're set free to walk in obedience. And we see that as an assurance if we are. We have life and peace through the Holy Spirit as we set our minds on Him. And hopefully we see that as an assurance. And hopefully we see the Holy Spirit empowering our life. Empowering our life now and then empowering what will come to us in the future in our inheritance. Again, biblical Christianity is the only religion on the planet that actually has such assurance, meaning that God will fulfill his promises that he has given us in Christ Jesus. Building on the text from last week, Paul will talk about the assurance that comes from the reality that we are free from condemnation. It is the assurance that we really are God's children, adopted into his family, and once again, the big idea up front this week, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit assures us that we are adopted into God's family. And we're going to look at three evidences of that from the passage this morning. Why adopted? Why is that such a big word? Why is that important? How does the Holy Spirit provide us such assurance? Let's look again at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if we pause there, Paul, using language to draw further conclusions from what came before this, he's calling them brothers. He says that we have, because that we have been set free, in other words, from the condemnation of the law, right, because of what I just said, so then, he uses that language of continuing his thought, but he also calls them debtors. Debtors to what? Debtors not according to the flesh. He doesn't actually come right out and say what we are debtors to. It's inferred, of course, and we know that from the chapters that have preceded this. We are debtors to God. We owe God. We are slaves to God, right? There's, there's two camps. We've talked about this every week in the last couple of weeks. You're either in Christ or you're in the flesh. Either you are a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. And so by extension, we're either debtors to the flesh if we continue to sin and rebel against God, or we're debtors to God, right? But why are we debtors to God? Well, simply, right, a debt is someone who has a legal obligation to, most of the time financially, pay for something, right? A debt, unfortunately, we probably all have them, right? We have to pay for something. We're legally on the hook to do that. That is our, our debt is what Jesus has done for us through his sacrifice on the cross. We are in his debt. Now that's a slippery slope because sometimes we can drift into what's called debtor's ethic, which is this idea that I have to pay God back for what he did to me. That's not what this is saying. And that will come into focus much more clearly as we keep going, right? He has set us free. There's no condemnation. And now we are debtors to God because of that. It gets to the heart of what the debtor is, right? We owe an obligation. And so who or what are we legally obligated to here? Paul explains that by stating what we are not obligated to. We are not obligated to sin. If you're a slave to sin, that's all you can do is sin. You don't really have a choice in that matter until God comes and renews your heart and gives you a new heart that gives you the ability to obey his law, right? And so Paul says, guess what? you are now freed from that chain to sin. You are no longer a debtor to sin. You are no longer in contractually bound to sin. You are no longer a debt. You no longer have a debt to continue to sin. He reemphasizes a concept he stated many times before uh, chapter 8 here in verse 12 and 13. The idea that flesh, and by, anytime he uses flesh, he's talking about sin, Sin leads to death, Paul says. He reiterates that. He says, if you live by the flesh, you will die. Sin always leads to death. He said that many times. And he says, and brothers, you are no longer obligation then to death. You no longer have, if you've been freed from the condemnation, you are no longer just in debt to death and sin. You can actually say no to the power of sin in your life through the Spirit. We talked all about that last week, setting our minds according to the Holy Spirit and not according to the flesh and sin. And so when Paul mentions the Spirit here, he is clearly talking about the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, that dwells in the hearts of every single believer. It's the sin qua non or the distinguishing mark of anything, especially a believer, is the Holy Spirit. And he goes on in the back half of verse 13 here to show us what living and walking and being led by the Spirit looks like. And that's putting sin to death. Look at verse 13 again. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, watch this, are sons of God. We get into that adoption language at the end of that verse. All who are led by the Spirit of God are. That is your identity. There's identity language there. Another four statement, because, and nestled in there is some really important proof of what a life lived by the Holy Spirit looks like. Exhibit A, are you killing sin? If you put sin to death, he says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, which is Pauline's shorthand for sin, right? The deeds of the flesh, the deeds that we do, right? Not in the spirit, the deeds that we do in the flesh. Even if we're Christians, we still have remaining sin in us. And sometimes we act on that. He says, if you do that, right? You will die. But if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, mortify sin. In other words, kill sin. The word for put to death here means to condemn someone legally. And so if you look at it, it's like God condemned condemnation to die. Kind of hurts your head a little bit. But God condemned sin to no longer have any power. So when we are are saying that, when we put sin to death, we are condemning sin from having a power in our lives. And we do that not through our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Note that putting sin to death is whose responsibility? It's ours, right? Because of what Christ has done now, because of who we are, right? Again, this is what we do. This is our responsibility. Based on what Christ has done for us, that is the outgrowth, the evidence of a life lived, watch this, led by the Holy Spirit is actually putting sin to death in our lives. Note the, the criticality of the Holy Spirit in putting sin to death. The text does not say if you try hard enough, you can stop committing gluttony or watching porn or demoting God to a secondary spot in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to do that. Right? But great news, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and therefore you have the power to put sin to death in your life, right? And just to be clear, we're not talking about a life that is completely absent from sin. Great news. We're all going to continue to sin. Isn't that amazing, right? But we should be actively, when we, seek, when we see sin, rather, we should be actively convicted of that sin by the Holy Spirit, and we should be actively putting that sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just to clarify there. Killing sin, verse 13 tells us, is necessary for life. If you kill sin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will live. We often speak of killing sin, but the other half is required, right? That's super important. We can't just think of the gospel as stop sinning. Don't do the bad things, right? That's legalism, right? So then we get like, okay, kill sin. Must seek and destroy all sin in my life. Must find everything, right? But... Okay, great, but also the opposite of killing sin is to bring to life the things of the Spirit. The old Puritans used to put it this way, mortify sin and vivify, right? bring to life, vivify the things of the Spirit. So it's not just stopping the sinful behavior. It is replacing it with the God-glorifying behavior. 
Not just white-knuckling and saying, I'm going to kill sin and then exist in this zen-like state. No, replace the sin with the behavior that God has called us to. And then verse 14 puts the cap on that thought by saying, for if you are led by the Spirit, here is then therefore your identity. You are a son of God. If you do this, you are being led by the Spirit and you are a son of God. You are in God's family. He adopts you as a son. And of course, this isn't restricted to biological males. Females are invited too, right? It just means everybody. He just uses the word son. We all, male and female, participate in these truths as we walk them out in our lives. And that's our assurance that we are actually in God's family. And so first proof is this. The Holy Spirit empowers us to kill sin and truly live as God's children. The Holy Spirit empowers us to kill sin and truly live as God's children. Notice how I worded that. There's a difference between surviving, right? Just eking out a living or whatever, survival mode, and actually living or actually thriving, meaning lives with fullness, lives of purpose, lives of joy. God wants his children to live. God wants his children to live lives of fullness and joy, and he tells us how to do that, kill sin. That's what he tells us. First proof from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to kill sin and truly live as God's children. So the question is, as I'm sure you are all astutely awaiting for, are we killing sin in our lives? Do we have lives that look like, ooh, that was a sin that needs to die? Do we have lives that say, that's a sin I've been struggling with for a long time. That needs to die. Or do we just live with it, keep it around like a pet? When you come across sin, are you putting it to death? Note the interplay of the Holy Spirit and its power and the work of the believer in killing sin. It's both. John Murray put it this way. It's a little wordy, but he was an old school guy. The activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity. So as we're killing sin, right, we're like, hey, I'm killing sin. The Holy Spirit is at work. Right? So the activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity, and the activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. So the Holy Spirit both empowers us to do it, and we look at that and we see that as evidence, and the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually causing us to do that in the first place. I tell people all the time who are struggling with sin issues, that's great news that you're struggling with a sin issue. Because if you weren't, maybe that's an indication you don't have the Holy Spirit within you. People who don't have the Holy Spirit don't care that they're struggling with sin. But if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you do care. And you're guilty and you're convicted and you want it dead and you want it gone. And God says, that's the way to truly live. You don't want to be in that state leading to death. If you want to be completely convicted of the importance of killing sin, you can read the book Mortification of Sin by the Puritan John Owen. And I've quoted from him many times, but famously, we've probably all heard, and I've probably said it many times, he simply writes, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the reality of sin. You can't keep it around. We're all going to continue to sin. And when you see it, you need to kill it or it will be killing you. Owen goes on just to say how vital this is to a healthy, powerful, vibrant Christian life. He says this, the vitality, power, comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. 
How do I live a, a powerful, fruitful, joyful, fulfilling Christian life? John Owen said it in the 1600s, and Paul said it well before that, and we're saying it today. Kill sin in your life. Don't blow by the tension, though, that it is both, right, the reality of putting something to death in order to live. See that? If we walk in sin, we'll continue to head towards death. But if we kill sin by the power of the Spirit, we head towards life. We had a great discussion last week at Care Group about what it actually means to be led by the Spirit, right? First and foremost, this is a great example of what it means to be led by the Spirit. Kill sin. Put sin to death in your body. There is so much false teaching out there about being led by the Spirit, right? Let's go by what the Bible says first and foremost. If you're led by the Spirit, you are sons of God and you are going to be killing sin in your life. And it's funny how the more that you do that, the more mature you grow and the more your discernment sharpens and the deeper you get and then you can kind of hear the Spirit's voice a lot more for some other things that the Spirit might be leading you to do. But sometimes in bad teaching, right, we want to put the cart before the horse. What wonderful thing is God calling me to do? I want to be led by the Spirit. Okay, great. Amen. Start in your own soul with the sin in your life. Then maybe you'll be able to hear God's voice a lot more clearly. But we have to cut that very, very carefully here. Last week, I gave you some... Very nice motorcycle. Last week, I gave you some very practical instruction of how to put sin to death. And to summarize that, I'll take you to a passage in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here it is. To put off your old self, that's killing sin, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you see that? So a three-step process. Put off your old self, meaning put off the sin. Actually say no to yourself, right? Walk away from the sin. Do whatever you have to do. Jesus talks about some, some very, very drastic measures that we would take to get rid of sin in our lives. or plucking out eyes and chopping off hands. Not literally, of course, but taking drastic measures. Do that. Renew your mind and then replace that sin with the new behavior that God calls us to. As Paul puts it in Ephesians created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, killing sin is not biblical if you just seek to stop sinning. You need to replace it. That's that we're after both killing sin and bringing to life the things of the Spirit. The gospel is never just stop sinning. It is actually start living. It's a good way to summarize the gospel. Start living, and the way to life is killing sin. We take off the old nature of gossiping, and we put on the new nature of speaking grace. We take off the old nature of drunkenness and put on the new nature of self-control. We put off the old nature of living with ourselves as our gods of our own little kingdoms. And we put on the new nature of submitting to God as first and foremost in our lives. Another practical way, church, and Paul talks about that in Romans, um, Ephesians 4, when I said it a minute ago, right? Renewing our minds. How do we renew our minds? Another practical way of putting sin to death 
is we got to use the right weapon, right? This is called the sword of the spirit for a reason, right? So when we talk about by the power of the spirit putting things to death, here's our weapon, the scriptures that we have in front of us. Scripture even tells us, A, what is sin, right? And then scripture tells us, B, what we're supposed to be doing. We don't know that unless we read scripture. We're convicted of sin. We say, okay, well then what am I supposed to be doing? Scripture tells us that too. And God's spirit works through his scripture to help us kill sin. Do not forsake the scriptures. Do not forsake our offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, in putting sin to death in our hearts. The Bible not only defines what sin is for us, but through the inspiration and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we are armed for the fight. Are you battling a particular sin? Memorize some Bible verses about it. Meditate on them. Here's another really good thing. Pray through those scriptures. Pray through those scriptures. Sometimes we can get caught up in praying the same things, right? Over and over and over again, which is fine. We should be praying. But pray God's word. Pray God's word in the fight for sin by using the sword of the Spirit. And let's not forget, it's not just the activity of sin in isolation, right? Our activity of putting sin to death is proof and assurance of our identity that we are we're being led by the Holy Spirit and that condemns or that demonstrates that we are actually children of God, children of God together in a community. And being children of God comes with many, many benefits, not the least of which is the privilege of calling God Father. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So many famous verses in Romans. Like every week, guys, I feel like I'm just staring up at this massive cliff of Mount Everest and we have to scale. It just feel like we're on sacred ground every week. And no matter what scripture we're on, we would be on sacred ground. But Romans itself is just so meaty and so full of truth. Paul drops another four or because. How do we know that we're sons of God? Because you didn't receive the spirit of slavery that leads you to fear, but the spirit of, here it comes again, adoption. And so what is our motivation for obedience, right? We like to ask that in elder interviews, pro tip, when you're at your membership interview, right? We like to ask that. What's our obedience for obeying? What's our motivation for obeying God? Love for God, right? Love for God for what? For adopting us into his family. He says, you didn't receive the spirit of fear, you received the spirit of adoption. You're God's child. That's our motivation. Verse 15 has given birth to a million bad sermons and a million more worse worship songs centered on us. But the verse isn't about us. The verse is about what God has given us. Paul mixes metaphors a little bit here, saying that we did not receive the spirit, lowercase s, of slavery, meaning the power, the principle, the way it works, of slavery to sin and being powerless to it. But instead, you have been given the spirit, capital S, the spirit of adoption. Of course, that means the Holy Spirit. Adoption, like assurance, is a huge Bible word. 
The objective reality that when we repent from our sin and we trust in Jesus Christ, we go from guilty to innocent and we go, watch this, from an enemy of God to a child of God. God adopts us into his family and we get to call him father. It's a legal concept in Roman society and of course today, when you adopt a child, they officially become your son and your daughter. Think of adopting someone, a child, maybe out of a terrible situation with an abusive home, abusive father, and they don't, no longer are in bondage to that father. They're no longer in fear of that father. They now have a good, hopefully protective, loving father. Father didn't give birth to that. Well, he wouldn't have anyway. Father was not the biological father of that child, right? But now through adoption, he is truly that child's father. And that child has all the rights and privileges of any biological child that he had. And previously, when we were slaves to sin, we had much to fear. uh, Slavery to sin brings fear. It generates fear. It generates anxiety. It generates all of those things. And now through adoption, we've been set free from that slavery to sin and now adopted into God's family where there's only grace and love and, and peace towards us. When we were slaves to sin, we had fear of God's judgment and death. Slave to sin, right, leads to that fear of God's judgment. That's the spirit of fear. But now, that is gone. That fear is gone. Why? Because he's adopted us. He's now our father. And we get to call God father. Specifically, we get to call, Paul says, God, Abba which is Aramaic for father, and Paul clarifies that in the text. You've probably heard it said that Abba means daddy, which that's just a little too far. Because that just, that just gets us into that way overly intimate part of the, part of the spectrum. So I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with translating Abba as daddy. He is not our daddy God. He is our heavenly father which is really, really important to think about. Paul's point is that our status has changed. God is now our father. We are privileged to call him father. Only the children of the house could call the master father. His business associates could not call him father. Slaves could not call him father. No one could call anyone father unless he was his biological or adopted child. And then he would call them, or they would call him Abba. The fact is that when we call God father... We were once his enemies, right, outside of his family. And now that we are adopted, it testifies deep in our own spirits, our own inner person, that we are actually, in fact, children of God. Our identity as children is deeply rooted in our hearts speaking to us. The Heavenly Father calling us his son, his daughter. And all this, again, through the work of the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption, it assures us that we are adopted into God's family. And so the second way the Holy Spirit does this is the Holy Spirit allows us to call God our Father. How do we know that we have assurance that we are adopted into God's family? He allows us to call him Father. Church, we should rejoice in this, that we call God Father. We often sing the song, Jesus, Thank You, where the line says, we were once your enemy, And now we're seated at your table, seated at God's banquet table. And once we were not allowed even in there, 
God adopted, watch this, God adopted his enemies, right? We were his enemies, and he adopted us. Talk about grace. Talk about work of the Holy Spirit. This is biblical shorthand for the gospel. Jesus himself, in the power of the Holy Spirit, went to the cross, propitiating, satisfying the full wrath of God for sin in our place, and he was victoriously, of course, raised from the dead by that same Holy Spirit that now lives in us. And when we turn from sin and we turn to Christ Jesus in faith, we have that Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer wrote in Knowing God, Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be this, adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect to ever meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Think about that. He wants to sum up the whole New Testament with three words, adoption through propitiation, right? We had God's wrath for sin on us. Christ satisfied, propitiated that, and now we are adopted into his family. And while we're throwing around the word adoption, it's critical that we clarify that not everyone is a child of God. It's a very common misconception, misunderstanding to think that we are all God's children just because we're human beings. And that's not biblical. These are for, this privilege of calling God Father is for believers, for people who have turned from their sin and trusted Christ. Look at John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's for us, church. At the risk of sounding a little bit self-improvement or whatever, how special should that make us feel? We have the right to call God Father through our faith in Jesus Christ. Not anyone else has that. Not just any single person who's walking around the planet Earth. They're made in God's image, don't get me wrong. But we have the privilege of calling God Father. That should make us feel loved. That should make us feel cherished. That should make us feel valued by the creator of the universe. Think about the privilege of of being God's children. Parents, of course, we can relate to this, right? We would do anything for our kids. Parents, when you, you truck downstairs later to go get your kids from Kingdom Kids, right? You see lots of kids. You're like, nope, 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 mine. And when you see your kid, right, you feel that, right? That little bit of, Nope, none of these other kids are my kids. That kid's my kid, right? And that, that sweet, I always loved picking up the kids from downstairs, you know, they'd run to you, daddy, you know, it's that idea, like that idea. There's that bond there. You don't have that bond with any other kids. You have that bond with your kid. That's the bond that God has with you. He's your heavenly father. We think about that. There's this, this bond that is so deep within the hearts of parents and children is reflected, of course, in the bond that's with us and God through the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, Paul tries to, tries to tell us that. Look at Romans 8, verse 16. He says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is a little mystical, maybe. This is a little, we don't really understand how this works, but he's basically saying, guess what? In your inner person, in your spirit, the Holy Spirit communicates at that deep level inside your heart that you are, in fact, his children. 
There's some sort of inner confirmation that happens where the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit that we are, in fact, God's children. It's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Again, our faith is a mixture of of facts and feelings. And we, we understand that to dwell on one or the other is an error. You need both. We have this feeling. The, the scripture tells us there's this thing that happens. There's this feeling that happens. Deep in our spirits, that's the Holy Spirit whispering to us that we are his child. But then there's also the facts of the gospel. We need both of those. Paul also includes feelings elsewhere. How do we know we're adopted into God's family? The Holy Spirit testifies to us deep in our heart. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It says this, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and also who has put his seal on us, his mark of ownership, his seal on us, and watch this, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We feel that in our hearts. That's part of the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Praise God that we can both look at our lives and we can see factual evidence. Am I killing sin? Do I care about sin? Yes. I'm putting sin to death. I'm actively being convicted. I'm confessing. I'm repenting. I'm replacing it with those things that God wants me to. But also, we have the feelings of assurance that are communicated deep into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of us struggle with the truth of thinking about God as Father. Some of us may not have had good fathers. But it's the comfort of knowing that God is not like us. God is not like any other father. God is the perfect Heavenly Father. Where our earthly fathers may have failed us, and we all fail as fathers, but where our earthly fathers may have failed us, our Holy Spirit never fails us. What does it practically look like to know that God is our Father, I'll give you three quick applications. Much like an earthly father, he provides for us, he protects us, and he causes us to persevere. God provides for us. He provided Jesus in order for us to be adopted into his family. He provides for us, much like an earthly father provides for us. God is our protector. He defends us from the lies of our enemy. He won't let our souls be lost as we sing so often. And third, God causes us to persevere. He will empower us to make it home, right? God, our Heavenly Father, He provides for us, He protects us, but He also causes us to persevere so one day we will make it home. And that's where Paul is going to land the plane this morning. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Yes, I know, I picked up verse 17 in the middle of a sentence. It was really weird. None of the other commentators did that, but it just flowed better to me, and I have a plan. If we are God's children, or rather, since we are God's children, we are not merely his children. It gets better. We're not only his children. We are his heirs. An heir isn't a word we use very much these days, but it means someone, usually a son, who will inherit something from his father. What will we inherit? We will inherit God. We'll inherit God himself. Sometimes we can really overcomplicate things, but the goal of the gospel, as John Piper wrote in one of his, one of his books, 
God is the gospel. Like the goal of the gospel is God. Sin broke our fellowship with God. So we need to get to God, but we can't. The gospel brings us to God. There's only one way, Jesus Christ. So we, have, we inherit God himself. We have the fellowship. We get God back, in a sense, that sin has uh, disturbed that relationship. But we also will inherit what is God's, namely his kingdom. We will share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. This text confirms that by saying we are co-heirs with Christ, we don't inherit God through our own merits, but through Christ. Right? Christ is the one who did the work. So because of him, we share in the inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. We do not inherit God through our own merits, but only through Christ. The inheritance comes with a price. Suffering. Yay! It's conditional suffering. <clears throat> Paul says, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. That is not going to sell very many books. It's not going to draw many people in, right? The, the Bible telling us that we suffer with Christ. That's the condition of our inheritance is suffering. But we will be glorified with him one day. Right? To be glorified means we will be perfected with him one day. We will be with him forever. We will be done with sin. How and why, he goes on. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul first starts with the good news of our inheritance through suffering, right? But that suffering is not even worth compared to what we will inherit. And one day the glory that is God's will be ours. We will be perfect. We will be like him. We won't be God, but we will be like God. We will be free of sin. We will be living forever, forever with Christ. Right? As hard as life can be, church, and some of us suffer greatly, it won't even be a thought in our minds as to how great our inheritance will be in heaven. That will empower us through those times, won't it? When we're suffering, it's, just, it's not even worth comparing. It's not even the same category of what you will receive one day in your inheritance. That has to encourage us. There are two kinds of suffering Paul points out. The first one's creation. Creation is subject to sin. Verse 20 tells us that creation was subject to in, in futility, right, the sin of Adam, he's the one who subjected it, but God allowed it to be subjected because he knew the hope one day of what we would be called to. So as we endure this suffering here on earth because of sin, one day we, in, we will inherit the kingdom. Just like the second part, the kingdom, the children of God, rather, will be set free one day from our sin. And we will experience that. And creation itself when it's renewed, we will be set free from sin. Verse 22 personifies creation by saying it's been groaning together in labor pains until that day. 
And even through today, until today as well, he says. It's continued. Creation, cursed by sin. We see natural disasters and sickness. He says, but that's the end will come. Just like a mother who is in labor pains knows one thing. Guess what? There's a baby coming. You're not just in pain for no reason. There will be a child born. And once you have that child, you're not going to dwell upon the pain of childbirth. You're not going to forget it, from what I understand. But you have your baby. Paul says the same thing. Yeah, we're suffering now. But one day, what we're going to get is going to be so much greater. You won't, even, you won't even remember or think about how bad it was when we have our inheritance. Paul explains the, the second kind of suffering again within ourselves. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. <clears throat> now hope that is seen is not hope. For, he, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul explains the second kind of suffering. Not only is creation groaning, but guess what? We're groaning too. We're groaning, why? Under the weight of sin. We're groaning because we feel the pull of sin on our bodies and our spirits. Right? Christians who have the Holy Spirit, we groan against the weight of sin, the consequences of sin in our own lives as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. But hang on, I thought we were already adopted. So what are we waiting for? The eager, I don't understand. Is Paul... This is the tension, guys. This is, this is, we see this all the time. This is the already and the not yet. Yes, we are already adopted, right? But we haven't actually been adopted yet because we're not home yet, right? We are spiritually adopted, right? We are secure in Christ. We can be assured of that, but we don't see that yet. That's what we hope for. That's the consummation of that. Same with the sons of God, right? This is when the sons of God are revealed, he says, we, we know who are Christians now with reasonable certainty. But one day, they'll be sure. Everybody will see who the true Christians are. They'll be revealed in that time. They will see. <clears throat> we are spiritually, one day we'll be adopted physically. This is the hope. This is, this is the hope why you're saved. This is the hope of your salvation. Our salvation is not merely forgiveness of sins. But with the forgiveness of sins allows us to inherit God and his kingdom, right? Sometimes we kind of get this overly personal, private thing. It's like, yes, I'm forgiven of my sins. Great. But what does that allow you in the future? You have an inheritance for all time, eternity. You will be part of the kingdom of God. This is the hope that we haven't seen. It's the definition of the word hope itself. We hope for what we don't have yet. If we have something, then we're not hoping for it. It's like Paul being rhetorical here. It's like, well, yeah. You're not hoping for something you actually have. You're hoping for something that you're going to get. And we wait for it in patience, he says. That's what structures our whole lives so that we can wait through this suffering with patience because we know the end. We know what's happening. Most of the time, I become impatient because I don't know what's happening. Paul tells us what's happening. Therefore, you can wait through suffering and endure it with patience. So the third proof that the Holy Spirit has assured us that we're adopted into God's family is this. The Holy Spirit confirms the hope of our future inheritance. 
It confirms the hope of our future inheritance. How does the Holy Spirit do that? In verse 23, we have the first fruits of his promise now. First fruits refers to that first part of a farmer's harvest, right? You start to see things growing, and you're like, wow, it actually worked. We see things growing in our garden. I don't have a garden. Maybe I will someday. But you see like little baby cucumbers that are, it's like, wow, it's happening, right? What does that tell you? Same with childbirth. Like you're going to have a child. Hopefully one day you'll have a fully grown cucumber that you can actually put on your salad. (laughs) It's the first fruits. We see it coming. And Paul says, that's the Holy Spirit that's in our hearts now testifying to us that one day we will see it with our own eyes One day all this suffering will be worth it. We'll see it. Holy Spirit confirms the hope of our future inheritance that we are heirs of God and his kingdom. But first, we have to suffer. It's part of the plan. Now, you might be tempted to think that suffering here means means persecution for your faith, which, of course, is not out of the realm of possibilities, and we will, but that's not in context here. The suffering Paul's talking about here is suffering for sin. And those two places that Paul talks about suffering for sin. First, we suffer for sin. We see it in creation. We all, universally, every single human being, feel the curse of sin on our creation. Right? People in Hawaii are experiencing it in horrific detail right now. We see that. We see the power of the curse of natural disasters and natural evil. We see that. That's part of the earth groaning under the weight of sin. It's right here in our passage this week. Creation itself groans under the weight of sin. But secondly, we also as Christians groan against the curse of sin in our lives. Putting sin to death is hard work. It's, it, we groan. Anybody groan when they find themselves doing that sin again that they didn't want to do? And they're just, ugh. I did it again. And then the work of repentance and the work of confession and the work of changing our, renewing our minds and the work of replacing that, all of that, of course, through the Holy Spirit's power, which we can do, but it's work, people. We groan under that, but we don't groan without hope. Because even the confirmation, or even the, the, the groaning, right, even the presence of suffering is confirmation that it won't be that way forever. One day, creation will be made whole again. One day, we will be made whole again. And one commentator put it like this. We see in these verses that one day, God is not only going to renovate and restore not only our souls, not only our physical bodies, but the entire cosmos. So when we see natural disasters like Hawaii, yes, we grieve. But we think one day it's not going to be like that. Right? When we see sin in our actual lives and it grieves us and we groan under the weight of sin or we're sinned against by someone else and we feel it and we're hurt, we think one day it's not going to be like that. It's that first fruits. It's that taste through the Holy Spirit. We groan and we suffer, but we don't do so as those without hope. But let's clarify what biblical hope is. First, the text tells us that hope isn't something we have already If you have something, you're not hoping for it, right? Melanie's birthday's coming up a week from tomorrow or something like that. 28th, I know the date, I just don't know. I have several presents that I'm waiting on the Amazon people to bring. I am hoping that they come in time, (laughs) right? 
But as each one gets delivered, you got a lot of presents coming. As each one gets delivered, right, I don't hope for those anymore. No, I have that. Same idea. We're hoping for what we don't have yet. So as we suffer, as we groan, we hope for what we don't have yet, which is our future inheritance, but it is sure. Surely as the Amazon people will hopefully deliver those things, right? Much more sure, shall I say. (laughs) So they don't always deliver those things. Biblical hope is not, as one theologian put it, wish projection. Baseless kind of things. Like, I hope I go home today and there's a brand new tundra parked in my driveway. Like, I have no basis to believe that. And there really shouldn't be, because I love my current tundra. Right? It is, it is a firm conviction. Here's a good definition for you. It's the firm conviction that, you, that the future promises of God will be fulfilled. What is the basis for our hope? God himself. It's not, I hope I get a puppy for Christmas. This is, I know who my God is, and I have a firm conviction that what he has promised me will take place, because he is perfectly faithful. Will he see me home? Yes. Will one day suffering and groaning under the weight of sin be gone? Yes. Why? Because God promised it, and God is faithful. Biblical hope is way different than ordinary human hope. It's not baseless. It's not empty. It's based on God. What is the confirmation of that hope? Again, the Holy Spirit. We have it now as a, as a deposit, a first fruit. First, or Second Corinthians 5 tells us that for while we are still in this tent, right, our human bodies, we groan, being burdened, but one day... He who has prepared for us the very thing is God. He has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Sink your teeth into that word guarantee, right? We are guaranteed our future inheritance. Why? The Holy Spirit guarantees it. So the question that always comes up, it's not if you can lose your salvation, is do you actually understand your salvation? Have you ever actually obtained your salvation through the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is in charge of salvation from beginning to end. He's the one that saves us. He's the one that will bring us home. The Holy Spirit does many things, but one of them is the guarantee that God will do just as God promised he would do. The Holy Spirit confirms the hope of our future inheritance. And so last week we asked the question, how can we be assured that therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus? The Holy Spirit gave us that confirmation. Are we walking in the power of obedience? Are we experiencing life and peace as we change our mindset? Do we see his empowerment in our life now? This week, the question then, how can we be assured that we're adopted into God's family? Answer again, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to kill sin and truly live as God's children. So are we actively doing that? That's the assurance that we've been adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit allows us to to call God Father. Do we grasp some of the depth of the privilege of calling God Father. How do we understand God? Do we understand him as an impersonal force, a giant ogre in the sky, a cold, harsh, egotistical, restrictive authority, or as our loving, gracious, heavenly Father who protects us, who provides for us, and causes us to persevere? Let the Holy Spirit, through God's word, then show us the privilege of calling God Father. 
And the Holy Spirit confirms the hope of our future inheritance because we're not just children, we're heirs. We have an inheritance kept in heaven for us, waiting, undefiled, unblemished. It is impossible for it to be taken away because God himself is the one who guards it. And he gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal and a deposit until that time. So what if we aren't experiencing any of these things? First and foremost, make sure you have a biblical understanding of the gospel. Make sure that, as Paul says, you test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Did a conviction of sin actually lead you to actually repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ? Right? If it did, great news. You have the Holy Spirit within you, and you can walk in these things and have that assurance. And second, I'd say this, soak in Romans 8. All of us, soak in Romans 8. Pray your way through it. Ask God to remove the misunderstandings and let the Holy Spirit, through the light and the power of the sword of the Spirit, his word, assure us, church, that we are, in fact, children of God. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for, Lord, we're so familiar with some of these things. But I would ask in a special way that the Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts the idea, the concept, the depth, the privilege of these things, of the reality of our call to kill sin and truly live, how that's wrapped up in our identity. Those who do that are your children. Lord, the reality of how we get to call you Father, not just Lord, not just King, Father, and Lord, the reality of how you will cause us one day, you will cause us to persevere, you will strengthen our hearts, you will cause us to receive that inheritance one day. May we be encouraged by all of these things, Lord, as we seek to have that assurance and bear fruit for you. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.